Welcome, welcome, welcome to My Thing Is This Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sampson. And each week, we talk about what's going on in the world. And as we talk about that, I let you know my thing is this, about what's going on in the world. Again, I'm your host, Troy Sampson. Welcome to the My Thing Is This Podcast. Stay tuned, buckle up, and enjoy the ride. Good evening, good evening, good evening. It is Sunday, December the 19th, 2021. I am your host, Troy Sampson of the My Thing Is This Podcast. It's a weekly podcast giving you my thing is this on what's happened over the course of this week. The first topic that I want to talk about, well, let me first say this. I hope everybody had a great week. Uh, we are upon, we are in the holiday season. I hope everybody's staying safe and doing what they need to do to make sure that everyone is safe. If everybody's traveling, I'll give everybody safe travels and mercy. Um, for those individuals who have a rough time this time of year, who have lost loved ones who are no longer here to celebrate these holidays with, my prayers go out to you for peace and comfort. And I just pray that uh, during this holiday season, we don't have any tragedies going on when people's burning in a house because of a tree. I mean, it seems like every year someone gets displaced during this holiday season. So I'm just lifting it up in prayer that no one gets displaced, that we have a safe holiday and all is well. But my first topic I want to talk about has to do with the holidays and everybody's safety. And that's this new Omicron variant of COVID-19 that is cause massive outbreaks all over the place. The more so, I live in Maryland, uh, Prince George's County in Maryland. And on Friday evening, I guess about around close to 4.30, uh, Dr. Monica Goldston, who's the CEO of the Prince George's County Public School System, shut it down, basically. Uh, that Everyone's returning back to virtual learning. Um, for the rest of next week and sometime into the middle to late January because of this outbreak. It started out as three, I think, elementary schools had outbreaks that she shut down in the beginning. But I think this virus has picked up steam again and is causing shutdowns again. And I just want everybody to be safe. I mean, you've heard me voice my feelings or give my thing is this on the vaccines and so on and so forth. And I don't want to go back and rehash that. You know, the vaccines are a personal choice. Um, but I think it's a personal choice that needs to be given with thought. Um, and the thought is, is that we have a lot of people out here who are compromised immune systems, a lot of people that are elderly, a lot of people have serious health issues. Um, and I think folks that don't decide to take the vaccine just think about those people that you're around that you could that you could affect um grandma great aunt cousin friend any other loved one someone close to you if you were to pass covid-19 on to them um in their compromised state um again it's a personal choice everybody has the right to the personal choice <clears throat> You have a personal choice to be vaccinated or you have a personal choice to be unvaccinated. But my thing is this, whichever choice you make, you have to be willing to live with that choice and operate within that choice accordingly. 
And what I mean by operating that in that choice accordingly, if you decide not to get vaccinated, right? Then make sure you are looking out for other people. Just because you don't want to get vaccinated doesn't mean that you go all willy nilly, not wearing your mask, not doing all these things. I mean, I would want, I would think you want to want to protect yourself from even getting the virus yourself. Um, and my thing is this: keep yourself safe. If you know you got older loved ones, family members, friends that have compromised immune systems, you decide not to get the vaccine. Make sure you wear your mask and make sure that you understand and don't get offended if they don't want you to come visit them. You know, the holiday seasons are upon us and, <clears throat> you know, it's a time for gathering with family, but we have to also be smart about it and not put ourselves in compromising positions where we're compromising not only our health, but also the health of others. And so, again, it's a personal choice and and. and Again, I say everybody has to make their personal choice. I, for one, will say I am vaccinated. Um, I don't have a problem with getting the vaccine. I have health issues of my own. I'm a cancer survivor um, with one kidney left. <laughs> I had kidney cancer. Diagnosed with kidney cancer back in two, 2014. Had one had my right kidney removed. And so I've been cancer-free since. Um, and so, plus, I'm also... Almost, I'm almost eligible for my AARP card. <laughs> Got a couple more years before I can get it, but I'm also older as well. So I made a personal choice, despite all of the cynicism, the the lack of trust with the government, and so on and so forth. And I made the best choice, as well as my family. We made the best choice that we thought was best for us. And if you think about it, we we've taken vaccines to go to school. We take vaccines to go to other countries. Heck, we go to McDonald's every day. Or every other day, or some people go to McDonald's every day. Um, the same Food and Drug Administration that has approved these vaccines, or the same Food and Drug Administration is approving a lot of the foods, especially the junk and the sugary foods that we eat. All those foods with lectin and pectin and kerosene and you know um, monosodium this and glucomate that and all these other things we've never heard of that aren't really natural. I mean, you can, when you get fast foods that you can stick inside of a box and they don't spoil after a week, like natural food or, you know, real food actually does, that's a problem. Um, the FDA is the same people that, you know, we got supplements out here that people buy off of Amazon, you know, from companies like now. I don't even want to name the companies. I don't want to throw nobody on the bus when I say that. But there are companies out there that make supplements um, that everybody's taking now that it'll say on the bottle, these statements have not been approved by the FDA and this is not meant to treat or cure any disease. And so, you know, again, I'm not going to stay on that soapbox too much. Um, I just want everybody to be safe. Whatever your choice is, just be willing to live with whatever comes with that choice. If that choice to not get vaccinated, you make has you not being able to visit loved ones then just live with that. Just love them from afar. You can Zoom them. You can call them up. You can go visit them and have them come to the door and stand outside the house and have a conversation. You can call them on the phone. It doesn't mean no anybody loves you any less. You made a personal choice. Where it gets sticky and where people have consternation is when you decide not to, but then you don't want to be safe and try to protect not only yourself, but also try to protect the people around you. 
And so that's where people, as a matter of fact, I had a conversation with an older gentleman on social media over the last couple of days who I said to him, you know, just because someone doesn't get want to get the vaccine doesn't mean they're bad people. And his whole premise was, was that people that don't want to get vaccinated are selfish. They're not looking out for others, this, that, and the other. I'm, 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 I'm mixed with that because I don't think people are intentionally going out here not getting the vaccine so they can go around and start spreading the vaccine or spreading, not the vaccine, but spreading COVID to other people, especially loved ones, especially elderly loved ones, grandma, grandpas, great aunts, great uncles, so on the parents and so on and so forth. I don't think that's their intent. I think this thing has turned into a political thing, a right to choose, a, a lack of trust in the government and so on and so forth. And so everybody has their their views on it. I just trust in my faith, you know, I believe that God has put plenty of people on this earth that are, are that are for the good, uh, and I'm gonna lean on that because um, you may have some doctors and epidemiologists and virologists out there that may be you know playing for the other team, playing for Satan's team. But I know there's also not everybody's playing for Satan's team. That you got doctors and good doctors and nurses and epidemiologists and virologists out there that are also playing for God's team. And so I'm gonna put my faith in them, and to those are people. They're telling me, hey, it's best to get the virus. I mean, not get the virus, but get the vaccine. Excuse me. Um, then I'm going to follow that because he's anointed them with those gifts. And I'm just going to trust in my faith in the Lord. And I'll leave it at that. Like I said, I don't hate anybody that doesn't get it. I Sometimes I question that if you're participating in this global economy, you're taking and participating and you're not living off the grid and living off your own stuff. I question the only question I have is, if you don't trust this vaccine, how can you trust anything else? Like I said, the FDA is the people behind approving this vaccine, all these vaccines, and they're also the people behind approving a lot of junk <laughs> that we take in and consume, a lot of junk that's on shelves that, you know, you got cream filling in between an Oreo cookie that is full of names that's made based off of names that we've never even heard of. But they taste good, Right. And we know that sugar and other things in foods is called massive obesity. It's contributed to our lack of um, health and well-being in this country. That's why a lot of foreign countries, you know, I'll use Heinz ketchup as an example. Over in Europe, they don't have a lot of the ingredients that the Heinz ketchup we have on our shelves over here have. You know, they ban GMOs. They've done a lot of things to protect those people over in those European countries because they don't want that junk in their foods. And so... You know, again, I'm not going to turn this into a political soapbox and go down that road. But again, I just want everybody to be safe. And my thing is this. You make your choice. You live with your choice. And don't hate on anybody that makes a choice either way. And just continue to just keep everybody safe. And that's that on the Omicron variant outbreaks. Now to the trial of Officer Kim Potter. In the Dante Wright shooting, I listened to um, I watched a show earlier this evening that was pretty much going through her testimony, and you know they had a couple lawyers on there, they had a host and a couple, the defense attorney and a prosecuting attorney on there to kind of give their sides of the story. And here's the thing about the Dante Wright case that is just so unique about this, right? And of course, you know, defense lawyers always try to manipulate the physical eye into getting a favorable decision. So, you know, Kim Potter doesn't look like a police officer on the stand. She looks like a soccer mom. 
you know, ordinary housewife or someone that's not in law enforcement. Um, and of course, you know, I believe that unlike Kyle Rittenhouse, I believe her tears are rare because she actually made a mistake, right? But here's the problem with the mistake that she made, right? She made a mistake that cost someone their life. And it doesn't matter if Dante Wright had warrants. It doesn't matter if Dante Wright even was resisting in that moment, right? She was the one that initiated Taser and said Taser and grabbed the wrong weapon. And this is why the Peace Act is so important that I think Ro Khanna and and, um, Lacey Clay, who's no longer in his seat in Missouri, were trying to push through, which is, in in situations like with the situation with Dante Wright, if the Peace Act was enacted, right, we don't we don't know. She could have still made the mistake, but at least the orders would have been followed that they would use everything to try to get Dante Wright out of the vehicle or whatever it is they were trying to do. If they were trying to arrest him, they would use everything outside of the actual gun to get him into custody. If if their objective was to get him in custody, that the gun would be the last resort, right? Now, on to the taser. Now, I've been doing a little research on this, and I've, you know, Google is our friend. Google can also be our enemy, too, because there's some, there's great news on Google, and there's also fake news on Google, right? So, I've done some research and looked at the differences between a taser and a firearm. So I came across this website. I can't remember. I can't recall the name. I just got some notes here on this. I came across this website where they had former law enforcement trainers and stuff commenting on the differences between a taser and a firearm. One of the major differences that they talked about between a taser and a firearm is by the design, by the look. Most service weapons are black. Most tasers are either a bright yellow or a bright green, or most of them are bright yellow, I think, right? Here's the other difference between the taser and your service revolver or your service weapon. The weight. A fully loaded service weapon weighs can weigh anywhere from 13 to something ounces. A taser from my understanding, weighs anywhere from four to eight ounces. So there's a weight difference that you immediately see or that you feel in your hand between the taser and your service weapon. If your service weapon has a clip and it has 10 or 12 magazines or 12 bullets in the clip, that's added weight. You'll feel the difference between that and an actual taser because it's, it's, it just weighs more, especially loaded. The other difference that these former law enforcement officers pointed out that I found interesting was when you use a taser in any situation where a taser has been either declared to be drawn or is you're following the peace act and you're drawing that as your steps to, you know, apprehend someone when you pull that taser, they're saying law enforcement officials, not me, to the, the website that I went to, these law enforcement guys are saying 
how can you not see if all of a sudden you just and so adrenaline's going so much you can't tell the weight by feel. But when you draw that taser, you're bringing that taser up to your eyesight. Or you're supposed to bring the taser up to your eyesight because you got to raise it to know what you're hitting. And as you're bringing that up to your line of sight or your eyesight, your line of sight, well, they call it line of sight. As soon as you bring it up, you're looking at that taser. That taser is bright yellow, right? It's not black like your service revolver or your service weapon. Most service weapons are black. Matter of fact, I think all of them are black. It's either a Glock of some sort. Typically, I think it's a Glock that police officers carry. Or some sort of nine millimeter. I don't know, Ruger or whatever you want to call it. Whatever they carry is black. And so not only do you feel the weight, when you look down the barrel of that service weapon, you're looking at a black weapon and down the barrel. When you pull the taser, if you do it properly, because you have to know where to aim a taser, you just can't go just pulling the taser, shooting off the hip. This is not GTA or Call of Duty. You have to know what you're hitting. So you got to bring it up to your line of sight. You got to fire it just like you have to fire your service weapon. So when you bring it up, you can't see that that's yellow. So that's the other thing that came out of this, right? And according to this law show and what they were saying about her experience that she has never actually fired a weapon in her 26 years on the force. So that's interesting as well. But my thing is this, and this is just my thing. Cause this is my thing is this podcast. My thing is this. If you are trained repetitively on drawing your service weapon and drawing your taser, and you know which side each one is on, right? As much as a as much as a mistake and as much remorse as she feels, it's still a mistake. Now, I know one of the defense attorneys that came on the law show didn't like the press conference that was held by the people standing for um, Dante Wright and his family, standing for other victims of body cam evidence is being suppressed and the one young lady called it murder. The one defense attorney pointed out that in this particular instance, it's kind of unfair to call what Officer Parter did or label it as murder, right? Because it clearly she said taser wasn't her intent. In all intents and purposes, let's just give her the benefit of the doubt here, that when she said taser, she meant to draw her taser. And that wasn't her saying, I'm going to commit murder and shoot Dante Wright. So she made a mistake. But here's the issue. And my thing is this. Where are the standards? You know, we got standards for being president. I don't know about that, given the last election or the election before last, our last president and commander in chief before that. I don't know if we still have those standards anymore. But there are standards that people have. There are standards in all sorts of industry. The standards in the military, military code, uniform code of military justice has standards you have to follow as a military member. Um, there's standards that you got to follow in just about everything that we do, you know, um, and you're responsible for those standards. And law enforcement has standards too. Those standards are training. You have to be able to distinguish between a service 
weapon and a taser. You have to be able to effectively fire both. You have to be able to make these decisions. And I know police officers have a difficult task every single day in serving and protecting. And it's a lot of police officers that have died during traffic stops and so on and so forth. And I get that and I understand that. But at the same time, they also have a responsibility because of the things that they have available to them to use on their job. Pepper spray, baton, taser, and ultimately their service weapon. Their service weapon is the one that they have to most be responsible for because that service weapon is, quite frankly, judge and jury on whether or not when you point that thing, someone will live or die. Now, again, she yelled taser, and, and according to the body cam video, she was very distraught. Even on the stand, she was testifying she's very distraught, and so on and so forth, that she made a mistake. But police officers are supposed to be professionals, right? It's like the citizens, we have to be professionals, and you have to be professional in your job, and you have to be professional in your job, and so on and so forth. And these are, and this is the job that a lot of people sign up for to be a police officer. And there are inherent dangers to that. But that doesn't make it right if you make a mistake. So my thing is this. Um, yes, it was a mistake. But I don't think she should go unpunished for it, though. You understand what I'm saying? I don't, I don't think she should go unpunished. There has to be some sort of punitive action that she has to be responsible for and, and be able to take because Dante Wright lost his life. Now, according to these attorneys, you know, one attorney had questions. Well, when she yelled taser, was there any other officers pulling their weapons? And I think closing arguments for this case are tomorrow. And I didn't have a chance to see the defense's cross-examination of her or anything of that nature. I'll try to catch up with that later. Um, but one of the defense attorneys who's doing commentary on this asked the question, well, what was the state and the mindset of the other officers? Were they pulling their weapons? Were they pulling their tasers? Is she, only one, is she the only one? And so those are things that factor in, you know. Um, and again, I know officers have a tough job. And listen, I'm, I'll be the first one to say I'm appreciative that we have police officers, especially the great and good police officers that are here to really serve and protect. Now, we got some bad apples. Don't get me wrong. We got a, we got quite a few bad apples that I think need to go. But all in all, I think I have one of my friends I grew up with as a police officer. And I know his heart and where his mind is is good. It's good intent. A lot of police officers go into this with great intent. But I think over time, some of them change. And then you got some that come into it because they were, you know, for whatever reason, their their their, their background and history says, I want to get into a position of power to have ultimate power. I didn't have it in high school or I might have been bullied in high school or, or whatever the case may be. You know, and there's some people out there that, that use that position and blatantly use it wrong. And so, again, I think, I believe that Kim Potter made a mistake. Um, but I think it's a mistake that she has to own and she has to pay for because it was a mistake, because that mistake resulted in someone's life. Now, you contrast that to Colorado, <laughs> 
where the guy that was in it, the, the truck driver, got a 110 year sentence. I don't think that truck driver was intentionally trying to kill anybody when an accident happened. So there's a petition out there to reduce his sentence, to bring down, to bring it down way, way down from 110 years. It's got over 2 million signatures to it. I don't know if that's going to make a difference, but I'm pretty sure he didn't go into this that day, wake up that morning and say, I'm just going to go and wreck the highway and kill all these people. I'm pretty sure he was driving. He made a mistake, you know, as well. But a 110-year sentence, uh, that's that's a little bit too much for my for my taste, 110 years. That's crazy. And my thing is this. This is where the trust of the justice system and the legal system gets a little gets a lot tricky. Like I said, I don't think this guy went out intending to kill all those people in that traffic accident. Right? Just like I don't believe that Kim Potter meant to pull a service rifle when she yelled taser. Um and this is an unfortunate event. I can't get inside of her mind. Nobody can. But all we have is the does the body cam video and the body cam video shows her full of remorse and just wrecked about her pulling the wrong device, but she has to be accountable for that. You, you, you know what I'm saying? I'm not saying at all. My thing is this: she shouldn't get completely off. She's got to be accountable for this. That's a mistake. That's a mistake. You know what I mean? She didn't set out to murder Dante, right? But she made the mistake of drawing the wrong weapon and actually killing him because she made a mistake. And he's gone now. You, you see what I'm saying? So, you know, that's just my thing. All right, so shifting gears. One of the articles that came out, and this has been around for a couple of weeks, is the housing appraisal discrimination. African-American couple had a home. I think it was in the San Francisco area. They got it appraised. It was appraised that X dollar amount. So they had a white friend come through. They restaged the house, removed all artifacts that the homeowners were African-Americans, had their white friend put pictures of her and her family up in the home. And the same appraisal company came back and appraised the same exact house for $500,000 more. I, I, did, I don't know how this appraisal company can explain this away. It's the same exact house. All they did was just remove any artifacts that showed that an African-American couple lived there and put in artifacts that showed that a white couple or Caucasian-American couple or family lived in that home. And it went up $500,000. I don't know how you explain that one. I just don't. I just do not, I just do not know how they explain that. I don't know. How do you, I mean, I don't know how you explain that. Um, and of course, you know, we, it, 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 it's happening and, and those are the, those are the racial tensions that have, have, have been here, but they've really ramped up since the, since the last president, 45, and also the insurrection and also COVID. It's just a lot of things. All this stuff is happening at once. And I know somebody that goes to my church that's a licensed social worker. And I saw him the other night at a couple's event. I said, hey, man, how you been? He's like, good. I said, 
you know, you're still coaching. No, I'm not coaching. I'm just doing social work, counseling full time. I said, well, you're going to be busy, brother, because a lot of people need counseling right now because it's COVID and all this stuff that's going on surrounding COVID. So that right there, again, is housing discrimination, housing appraisal discrimination. I, I just don't know how you explain that. And this is not the first time this was done. There was another young couple, I think out in California, did the same thing. I think it might have been a year or two years ago. And it was pretty much the same result. They got a house appraised for a certain amount, and then they had it reappraised where they took everything out of the house that resembled anything about them being African-American. And the house appraised for a couple hundred thousand dollars more. Same exact house, but nothing added to it. Only thing it was taken was artifacts, not rooms, not basements redone, just artifacts in the home pictures or evidence that there was African-American living there um, to just remove them out. And, and of course, you know, again, you, you, you know, and, and this is where, you know, leadership of this country really needs to step in if they're really serious about combating racism. Folks got to be held accountable for this. You know, they got to be held accountable. And that's just my thing is this accountability with that moving on a couple stories um in fact three i want to dig into real quick one is about disability law and law is not meant to discriminate against individual individuals with disabilities living with disabilities but do cause unto burdens when they're enforced and this article is very interesting because it talked about it talks about how there's one law that's supposed to protect individuals with disabilities, but in within that law, there's variables within that law that make it a burden even more. And I think one of the things they talked about was a recent uh, a recent withdrawn Supreme Court case, CVS Pharmacy versus Doe. You know, they say it's a victory for individuals with disabilities and advocates for disability rights. Um, it centers around HIV positive plaintiff bought their case against CVS because they wanted to be able to opt out of a program requiring to receive the HIV related medications solely through the mail rather than allowing them to access in-person services at CVS. Um, and so the question came before the Supreme Court um, in reference to Section 504 of the Rehabilita- Rehabilitation Act of 1973. It says, apply a situation in which a policy was created with the intent of being neutral and is later found to be harmful or discriminatory toward people with disabilities. And it was one example is a case in the 90s in which um, Hawaii require all animals entering the state to be quarantined to prevent rabies spread within the state. Okay, so they want all animals coming into the state. When they arrive into the state of Hawaii, they go into quarantine because they want to stop the spread. So they want to make sure the animals, kind of like traveling with COVID. Before you can come into my country, right, you have to quarantine when you get there for 14 days then we, you know, once the 14 days are over with, we retest you and you're going to have COVID, you're free to roam about the country. 
Well, in, in, in Hawaii's case, they wanted to require all animals entering the state to be quarantined to prevent the spread of rabies. Like I said, the, the policy seemed to be neutral, but it had a burdensome effect on individuals with disabilities who use service dogs or service animals. Um, and so that case was later, and that was an example, right? Where the law seems to be neutral and good on the surface, but when you dig deeper, now you interject someone traveling to Hawaii that is living with a disability that, that requires a service animal. So what is that person with a disability supposed to do for the amount of days that the, the animal needs to be quarantined? They're going to be without the service animal. The whole idea of a service animal was to be with them every day to accommodate their, their disabled needs. But they traveled to Hawaii, they get the service animal taken away from them. So what ended up happening was the case ended up being settled and Hawaii providing special accommodations for people who use service animals. So they had to compromise, right? And so, you know, they talk about how the idea behind some of disability protections is that you may not intend to discriminate, but there are affirmative allegations that you might have to take where your neutral policy could have a disproportionate burden or impact on people with disabilities. This is a quote from Stuart Seaburn, who's the managing director of litigation for disability rights advocates. It's a nonprofit um, disability legal rights center. Um, and so these were things that came up, you know, with the CVS case, right? And then there are also cases like voting, right? So if you vote by mail, which a lot of people have done, um, vote by mail because of the pandemic, right? If you're, if you're disabled or you have a disability that is blindness, how are you going to read that ballot that comes in the mail? How are you going to read that if you're blind, Right? You know, so that's that's one of those things. And then they cited another case, and this case was in the city of Portland called McGarry versus the city of Portland. And it's a perfect illustration. It said the homeowner living in Portland with significant disabilities was unable to keep up with the civil requirements for keeping the yard maintained. And they were facing fines or penalties for not keeping it up. Although in its policies for what, homeowners need to do to keep and maintain their properties. I can't imagine the city even thinking about people with disabilities at the time. To give them the benefit of the doubt, it seemed very neutral. At the same time, it really did have a disproportionate impact on a person who had these conditions that really didn't allow them to keep it up. Right? So the court said there's a disproportionate burden even if there was no intent to discriminate and they required the city to accommodate. So this person, fully disabled, has a home. They have a yard, right? Now, someone could say, well, you know, it's easy to just hire somebody to clean your yard or fix your yard up. Well, if you're fully disabled, most people that are fully disabled living on fixed incomes, right? They're probably living on fixed incomes or some sort of supplementary income that's coming in that they have to you know, take care of rent, mortgage, medicines, all the needs that they need to take care of themselves 
and a disability, right? So I think the last thing on their minds is when they get money from SSI or, or disability money or whatever funds they're getting, right? The last thing on their mind is taking that money and paying somebody to keep up a yard, right? So these are the sorts of things that um, that happen with some of these disability disability laws. So let's just keep that in mind that a law or provision for someone with a disability, right, or laws or provisions that are made that seem to be neutral can have a, can definitely have an impact on someone with a disability if the right accommodations aren't made. These are just a couple of perfect examples. You know, city required the yard to be kept up. Well, someone's fully disabled. They can't cut grass. They can't weed eat, right? And they may have a fixed, you know, fixed amount of money they have to live on to maintain where they're living and maintain themselves. Because like I said, somebody could even say, well, why don't they hire a landscaper or a lawn care service? Well, my thing is this. Maybe they can't afford it. And again, like I said, if I'm living, if I'm fully disabled and I'm getting funding from a trust or from state agencies, public agencies giving me funding to take care of my basic needs that I have to take care of, the last thing I'm going to be concerned about is a yard upkeep, right? So, you know, the city or the county, make those provisions, you know, make those provisions and say, hey, you know, this doesn't really apply to me. How is this going to work? You know? How is this going to, you know, and, and again, it, it's a situation where people don't think about those things where they're making these these rules and laws because they think that they're, they're helping, but when you dig into them, like with the service dog, you require a service dog to be quarantined just to come into a state. So what is that disabled person supposed to do for the 10, 15 days or how many days? They didn't specify how many days or why it requires your dog to be quarantined. But what are you going to do in the meantime? How are you going to function without your service dog in the meantime? You know, and it could be a disability ranger from being wheelchair bound, being blind, having PTSD, which we've seen. A lot of our veterans are coming home with PTSD from serving this country and fighting in Afghanistan and overseas and all those things where they require a service dog. So now you have someone who looks able-bodied. They can walk. They can talk. They can get around. But they have a service dog. And I've seen this pump up more and more. I'm like, matter of fact, I was in the store, what was it, one day last week, and encountered someone who had a service dog. And it said on the it said on this dog's vest, service dog. I looked at the individual. The dude was fitter than me, physically fit, looked younger than me. But I didn't judge him and say, why does he need a service dog? Because I understood it. He's probably a veteran that is suffering some sort of post-traumatic stress syndrome or has something going on. Whether he's a veteran or not, he's got something going on that requires him to have a service dog. I, I've seen service dogs um, become more and more prevalent with children um, living with autism um, or children have emotional disabilities where they have meltdowns, they have tantrums and stuff like that. And I've heard of some service dogs being trained to 
actually sense when that child or that person is about to go into a meltdown and then a dog does a series of acts to distract them, to get their attention, play with them, lick on them, jump up and down on them, run around them. And what it does is it draws that individual's, that child or that individual's attention away from why they were melting down in the first place. So now they're looking at this crazy dog running around, right? This crazy dog running around, you know, doing what it's doing what and whatnot. And I've seen dogs be therapeutic in other ways that aren't service dog. I, I saw the social media post because I follow, you know, quite a few people on social media that have children living with autism, children, young adults, and even adults living with autism. And this one particular lady had the pleasure of house-sitting for a neighbor, their dog. She's got like a six or seven-year-old autistic son. She's got a son living with autism, six or seven years old. He's nonverbal, you know, very antisocial, doesn't really talk much or at all. Again, it's nonverbal. And as part of one of the precautions in their home to look after him, they've got a camera in his room. And so she posted the video from the camera in his room of the dog just having fun with that child, running, jumping on his bed, playing with the child, and how she just gushed about how lit up he was and how that made her feel. That her son was actually laughing and joking and in some ways being verbal with that dog while that dog was playing with that with, with him. And so I think she said in her post, I think it was she wants to keep the dog or she's thinking about investing in the dog. Um, just for the sake of having that dog there for her son because it just opened up so many doors to see her son interacting and playing with this dog, hiding on the covers while the dog jumped on the bed, laughing, giggling, playing, something that she said he never did. And so in a way, that neighbor's dog is somewhat of a service dog because he's given a benefit to this child with autism, living with autism. And so my thing is this. Disability laws need to really, really take in consideration all scenarios and the, and the whole person, not just the disability, but the whole person and how that law or rule will affect that person in so many different scenarios. Right? And even outside the laws, even when people do events, right? And you know you have you could have special individuals, special needs or disabilities come into those events. Be mindful. You know? Do we have a wheelchair ramp? Do we offer some sort of accommodation for the deaf and hard of hearing? Do we provide accommodations for those who cannot see? Do we have a sensory room for those who are living with autism or other behaviors that if things get too tough at the event, they can go to the sensory room? So those are the things to think about. Those are things to think about. And I just found that article very, very interesting. And that's what that article is going to segue into two more topics. I got three more topics left. 
But a segue into two more topics. I saw on social media, and it really broke my heart to see this, and it really hurt me, to see video taken by someone in a school of someone beating, literally punching and beating up a young student living with autism just for no reason, just to be bullying them. And it really broke my heart. And I hope that student is punished to the full extent. And I hope that the student that was affected by that, the, the student living with autism, gets the help that they need and gets the protections that they need. Because I'm a little bit taken aback and I'm hurt in my spirit and in my heart by the person that took the video. Who took the video? And how did the video get to social media? It's often what we see all the time in, in, in things where people are so quick to want to be the new CNN. I'm going to take this video while this person is beating this person down and doing wrong. Instead of stepping in and saying, no, that's wrong. Stop punching that boy in his face. Why? Because you, you feel like you can be a bully to someone living with autism. But you won't be a bully to the 275-pound lineman on the football team. Oh, because he's bigger and stronger than you. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Okay. I get, I get it. I get it. And our children living with autism are easy targets. They're easy targets. So my wife and I, when Joshua was in school before he graduated last year, we were just so worried about this situation happening to him. And we're still worried to this day because now he's an adult. He's out of school. He's, he's a young adult now. And so we're still worried to death about the world around him and what the world is capable of because we've seen what this world is capable of. And so again, any any anyone bullying anyone living with a disability needs to be prosecuted to the full extent of whatever it is. If it's, if it's school, suspended indefinitely. Um, I I think charges should be pressed the whole nine because there's no reason that young student living with autism didn't do anything to that young man from what I understand my thing is this it's never okay to pick on someone number one living with a disability number two pick on someone smaller than you or pick on anyone period because when you do that, that says a lot about you and your character. That maybe you have some issues going on within your head that feels as though you have to try to use whatever power you have to dominate somebody else. Why? My thing is this. Instead of trying to bully and dominate that young man, help him. Help him navigate social skills. Because most of our children especially students living with autism, struggle with social skills. So instead of bullying him and turning him away from everybody to be social, because that's what that does, because now that young man doesn't know if the person coming up to him is going to bully him or is going to interact with him or at all. So guess what's probably happening with this young man living with autism? He's probably withdrawing even further socially. And I think that young man that did this should be punished to the fullest extent. There's no excuse for it. There's no excuse whatsoever. 
for it. Especially if that young man with all, living with autism did absolutely nothing to you, but just be a young man living with autism that you feel as though you can pick on. I was never a fan of bullying. Even when I was going to school, I was never a fan of bullying. I was never a fan of the so-called senior, you know, when you get to high school, the seniors jump to freshman day. I, I was never a fan of that. I was never a fan of that. I was never a fan of taking advantage of people or watching people take advantage of people in that way, bullying people. I was never a fan of that. It says a lot about your character, about who you are as a person. All right. And then segueing off of that, right, I, I reported last week about Frederick County Public Schools having a Justice, re- Justice Department report written about them, about them excessively abusing the seclusion rooms in their schools for children living with disabilities. Well, not too long after that, after I did the podcast, an article comes out. Fairfax School System sells suit over seclusion restraint, but questions still remain. So this is from WTOP. Fairfax County Public Schools, it's a disability rights organization families have reached a settlement with Fairfax County Public Schools over school staff use of physical restraint and seclusion on students in special education. But some parents that belong to the Fairfax County Special Education PTA are concerned about how the school system plans to improve some of the new requirements stipulated in the settlement. Most notably, how extensive training for special education staff will be, how extensive the training for special education staff will be. It all comes down to training. It all comes down to training. And I can say this, and I can say my thing is this. I have a child living with a disability or living with autism who has been in special education since elementary school, all the way up elementary, middle, high school. And we know what comes with his autism. We've seen it. And I think our educators, and I had a conversation with someone who is at the federal level of education, works for the U.S. US Department of Education. I had a conversation with her the other day. And... um found out some interesting facts about what the federal education department's role is and what the state's roles are. I'll talk about that on another topic. But anyway, um, back to this subject. You know, it's like you got to make sure people are trained. Crisis Crisis intervention training. When you see a child's IEP and you see what's on that IEP and you see you find out what they're living with, you got to train these teachers up in crisis intervention. Because it's easy for a child living with autism or, what, or any other disability, Downs or any other disability, to have a meltdown because of the disability. Right? A lot of kids don't have executive functioning skills. Their executive functioning skills are low. Their impulse control is low. They can't transition from one thing to another without it being a problem. A lot of kids have sensory issues, right? 
Those things are documented. A lot of parents tell educators, this is what's going on with my child. So you can't all of a sudden say, hey, I want to get into special education. I want to be a special education teacher. And then not equip or ask for and get yourself ready for what comes with that. Gone are the days where you stick every single child in one room that is in special education. I remember growing up, that's how it was when I was growing up, many, many, many years ago in school. Special education? Oh, that's the kids in classroom 101A. And in classroom 101A, you had children in a wheelchair with cerebral palsy. You had children that had Down syndrome, living with Down syndrome. You had children living with autism. You had children living with uh, intellectual de- delay, which is the, n- the new term for re- retardation. You had children living with um, a, v- a variety of disabilities all in one classroom. All in one classroom. It's crazy back then. But now, because of IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, you know, there's more inclusion to be involved with our students living with disabilities in classrooms. But you got to be able to manage and deal with them. You can't say, I'm going to college, I want to specialize in education, but I want to specialize in special education, right? With special education comes special children. These children are able to learn and do all the things that normal healthy children can do. It's just that some things like the executive functioning, receptive and expressive language delay or disorder happens. You have behavioral issues that go on. You have meltdowns that happen, temperatures that happen, well, meltdowns that happen. Temperatures and meltdowns are two different things, by the way. And I've learned that as a parent of a, 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 a son living with autism. They're two different things. And that's why I cringe when I see people post videos of children having a clear meltdown and they think it's a temper tantrum. Temper tantrums have a limit. Temper tantrums have a, the children that throw temper tantrums have an agenda. And they will only, and they know within that agenda they can go but so far. A meltdown with a child living with a disability, once that fire is lit, they don't have the ability for impulse control. They don't know when to stop or when to go. And it's and it's like a it's like it's like the furnace. <laughs> that raging furnace that they wanted to show <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in um back in the day. When they when they disobeyed the orders um of Nebuchadnezzar. They they wanted to it was a furnace they wanted to throw them in. That's that furnace. That's that flame that, that sets off in a child living with a disability. Once it's turned on, you can't turn it off. And what happens, and here's what I believe. My thing is this. What I what I think happens in the school system situations is you've got a variety of things that go on that can trigger a meltdown. Sensory overload is one of them. Noise is another one. Okay. Even being told no can set some of our children with disability off. But as educators, you have to know that you can't abuse this conclusion room and act as though that's your deterrent for this behavior. The seclusion room just removes them from that setting. They got to come back. 
most of the kids, most of the time, in my experience, especially even with my own child, right? They, it's not like a normal healthy child where you take and put them in a seclusion room. They're going to think the next time something happens, don't go that way. I don't want to go to that room. A lot of children living with disabilities and special education, they have that meltdown. You stick in a seclusion room, it's gone out of their minds as soon as they get calmed down. And I'm speaking facts on that because I've seen it in my house. Not that we did a seclusion room, but I've had meltdowns occur with my son. 15, 20 minutes later, Dad, Mom, I'm sorry. And everything goes back to normal as if it didn't happen. Meanwhile, me and my wife are sitting there just emotionally wrecked, still trying to pick up the pieces of experiencing this meltdown. He's going on about his business like nothing ever happened. That's the nature of what he's living with. That's what we as educators and as parents, well, as educators in this case, have to understand and realize. Don't go into special education if you're not if you're not going to be about it. If you're not going to get the training to handle these meltdowns that happen in your classroom. If you're not willing to implement strategies to help these help these children. You can't take it personal. It may feel like it's personal when they're going through it and they're saying certain things to you. But it's not it's not personal. It's they don't it's that there's a challenge there. That's why they're in special education. You have to be equipped to deal with this. A seclusion room is the easy answer, easy way out. And what ends up happening is kids get put in a seclusion room all the time. Why? Because nobody really wants to deal or nobody's been trained to deal with what that child is going through. And what that child's challenge is. And the easy way is just get him out of here. Put him in a seclusion room. Maybe that'll learn him. Doesn't learn him. Some kids it may. A lot of kids it doesn't. You're just isolating them. Isolating the problem instead of trying to work with the problem. Okay, what 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 is going on? What caused this to happen? And there are times where we have to suck up our pride and 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 know that and my thing is this. Again, this is the my thing is this podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sampson. My thing is this. Sometimes you're going to have to eat your pride. On the surface, it seems like what they did, you're going to let them get over? Oh, I can't do that. When you're dealing with kids in special education, children with living with autism or other sorts of, other sorts of disabilities that, that has them challenged in executive functioning, sometimes you got to take one for the team and let it go. Yeah, on the surface, you want to do the right thing and, and, and hold your ground and stand your principles. But sometimes you got to let it go. If you got to take a second position to get that peace in that moment, take that second position. I'm not saying make it a habit. I'm not saying be a doormat to our children in special education. But there are times where you have to take you have to take that blunt. You gotta take that. You got if if that, if that child is melting down because they 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 don't have a pencil, 
And instead of you trying to correct them and saying, hey, make sure you bring your own pencil or deny them that pencil. And all of a sudden a meltdown happens for that day. Give that child that pencil. Give him that pencil. Give him or her that pencil. And then what you do is once they got the pencil and everything is calmed down, you circle back with them. Hold them accountable and say, hey, you got to make sure you bring your pencil to school next time and send home a note to mom and dad. Say, mom and dad, you know, you got to make sure, you know, such and such has pencils every day. They just had a meltdown today because they didn't have a pencil and I wouldn't give them one because I thought they were supposed to be responsible for their pencil. But if they don't have a pencil, but they're not responsible for the pencil, the pencil. They don't have it. Then also you got to take into consideration, are they giving them all the way and not thinking in their mind, I got to keep a pencil for myself. That happens. Been there, done that. Right? Joshua, where's all your pencils at? Oh, well, such and such, uh, such and such needed a pencil. So-and-so needed a pencil. Another person needed a pencil. Dude, we didn't buy pencils for the whole school. We bought pencils for you. Right? And so we had to take an L on that that day and say, hey, listen, and really talk to him and coach him and coach him and coach him. Say, hey, listen, you have to tell people you don't have any extra pencils because if, you don't, if you're giving all your pencils away, you can't do your work. That's putting you behind. And so we didn't, we, 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 we found an intervention. We found an intervention to that crisis, the pencil crisis, and worked with him to ensure that he always had pencils and, and taught him that, hey, sometimes you need to say no. We didn't yell at him. We didn't scream at him. These are all strategies, folks. These are all strategies. These are all strategies. These are all strategies to of dealing. And so, again, my plea is this. You know, if you're in special education, you're a teacher, you know, the easy way out is seclusion rooms. But I would implore you to do your job and get crisis intervention training. If you have a school you're working in that doesn't have a crisis intervention program in your special education department, it's your special education chair's responsibility at that school. It's the principal's responsibility at that school because the principal's in charge of that school, not the special education department of your county. Or your jurisdiction, but the principal at your school, get a crisis intervention team and plan and training together instead of just suspending these kids or putting these kids in seclusion every time you turn around. You know what they're walking in the door with. Doesn't make any sense. You know what they're walking in the door with. You know what they're walking in the door with. My thing is this be prepared. Get the training. It's about the children. It's not about your ego or your feelings. A lot of our children don't understand what that means. They don't have tact. Like if you walked up to me, you had something in your nose, I would either do a hand gesture at my nose or would pull you to the side and say, hey, you got something in your nose. Most of our children, not all, but most of our children living with a disability or receiving special education services, they are they 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 are they're too blunt. They're blunt. They're truthful. They have no filter. Ooh, you got a boogie in your nose in front of everybody. That's a part of what they're living with, and we have to work as the smart in adults in the room, figure out a way to work with that. Johnny, where's your pencil? I don't have one. Can I have one? No, you should have bought your pencils. Now Johnny's pissed off. Johnny's mad. Right. 
instead of saying to Johnny, okay, Johnny, I'm going to give you this pencil today, but talk, we're going to have to see about getting you, get to, I'm going to send a home, note home with your parents tonight saying you need more pencils. Implement a plan. Don't just say, no, Johnny, you got to be responsible for your pencils. If Johnny doesn't have any any pencils, that means Johnny's not responsible. Johnny's living with autism. Pfft. He either gave him away or he's not responsible. He don't know where his pencils are. Give Johnny some grace in that moment instead of allowing Johnny to have a meltdown. I heard from a parent who said their child was suspended three times in a month. The last one was because he didn't have a pencil. And the teacher told him, no, he couldn't get a pencil. And so he forced his way past the teacher to get a pencil and then suspended him, sent him home. Because he forced his way past the teacher to get a pencil. Once he got the pencil, everything was good. But because he forced his way through the teacher to get a pencil, that was a problem. They sent him home, suspended him. Come on, y'all. Come on now. Really? Really? The book of Proverbs is full of wisdom. We got to have wisdom, adults. We got to have wisdom. We have to have knowledge and wisdom. The knowledge is the knowledge of these disabilities that you're teaching or the students that you're teaching and the wisdom to get this crisis intervention training and implementing that training. Come on now, knowledge and wisdom. The book of Proverbs is full of it. Solomon was a wise dude. Get an opportunity Read the book of Proverbs about wisdom and knowledge. Moving right along. And my last topic of the evening. Steph Curry. Shifting gears of sports. Steph Curry. Is it Wardell Stephon Curry? Stephen Curry or Stephen Wardell Curry? I don't know which one it is. Anyway, so Stephen Curry recently against the New York Knicks in Madison Square Garden, I think it was in the second, third, three-point attempt, broke Ray Allen's all-time three-pointers made record. 2,970-something, I think it was. Monumental feat. Steph Curry, and it's just my opinion, my opinion. I know there's a GOAT. Right now, until Danger Productions, shout out to Danger Productions on YouTube, until he does a GOAT video like he did with LeBron and Jordan, the way he broke it down into those categories, until he does one with Michael and Kareem, Michael Jordan would be my GOAT. I am on the fence. If that guy, Danger Productions on YouTube, does another video where he does Kareem versus Michael, I don't know if Michael's going to win that one. So if you get an opportunity, just go to YouTube and do the search and say Danger Productions goat video. Danger Productions, all one word, goat video. And it'll take you right to the video he did of the goat comparison between LeBron James and Michael Jordan. He did analytics. He did statistics. He did eye test. And I was having a conversation with a friend of mine about that video. And I said to my friend, I said, I don't know if Michael, given those categories and the way the guy broke them down with context, would be Kareem. 
Kareem did have longevity. Kareem won a bunch of rings. Kareem is the all-time leading scorer. Kareem is probably in the top five or ten in all statistical categories for centers. Because in that Danger Productions video, you can't compare. They didn't compare Michael to LeBron man for man. Because it's not fair. You can't compare a shooting guard to a small forward. So what they did was they took them and compared them to their position. And Michael was like number one pretty much in every statistical category for shooting guards. Where LeBron was one. He was number one in one statistic. I think it was assists. Everything else he was like five, fifth, tenth, whatever, whatever. So Jordan pretty much won that one. But again, if the Danger Productions does a GOAT video between Michael Jordan and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I think Mike might take an L. They've always said Kareem was the greatest of all time. Think about look at the look at the high school and the college career. I mean, Kareem came from Power Memorial, big time high school program. Then he went to UCLA during the John Wooden era that was winning all those titles in college. Right? I don't think he ever participated in the Olympics, but then he went on to the NBA. I think he won a title. I think he won a title with the Bucks, and then went on. And of course, he's most claimed to fame was with the Lakers and Showtime Lakers. Unstoppable skyhook, like Jordan's fadeaway jumper. Unstoppable. Kareem's skyhook become unstoppable. Now Kareem will get him in longevity because Kareem played like twenty years. Mike only played like thirteen. I think it was. Um, I think Kareem. When you look at. Statistical categories of centers. Kareem is probably the all-time best scorer at center position. Then again, I don't know. But I still say it would be an interesting thing. But let me digress and go back to Steph. Because that's what I'm ending this podcast with is Steph Curry. By all accounts, let's talk about the all-course stuff first. Steph Curry seems to be a man of God. He seems to be a faithful father. He's got a beautiful wife, three beautiful children. He does everything right. He's with Under Armour. Um, he's contributed and supported Howard University's golf team. He's just an all-around good guy. That's off the court. Now, on the court, when it comes to shooters, this guy has revolutionized the game. I've seen a lot of shooters in my day. I've, I've, I've been a fan. I was, I was, I'm a child of what I call the golden era of NBA, which was 1979 to 1999. That's where I think the greatest basketball ever played was played between 79 and at 99. Because you had Magic, Kareem, Worthy, those guys going up against Bird, Mikhail Parrish, and the Celtics. Then come along the bad boys, then the Bulls. And of course, you sprinkle in the two Houston championships, you sprinkle in the Knicks, you sprinkle in Indiana, you sprinkle in, you know, the Eastern Conference was dominant back then. Big men were dominant back then. And I, I think it was a golden era where you had to earn everything you got. So I'm a, I'm a child of that era. But even watching some of those shooters back in that day, the Reggie Millers of the world, the Dale Ellis's of the world, you know, those guys, um, Drazen Petrovic, before he died in an automobile accident, he, his life was cut too short, right? You start looking at those guys that can really shoot the basketball. Dale Ellis comes to mind. Um, 
it, it, it's just amazing. One guy that, is, that doesn't get a lot of press in pub because his life, his career was cut short by his feet. He just had bad feet. Andrew Tony of the 76ers was one of the best shooters and best scorers during that period. But he just never, the injuries to his feet just really messed him up. I think had his injuries to his feet not have been an issue, Andrew Tony, bonafide Hall of Famer. Bonafide score, bonafide shooter. He could shoot that ball. You talk about guys like Vinnie Microwave Johnson come off the bench. That's why they call it the microwave. It's instant scoring. But in all those guys that I've had the pleasure of seeing from 1979 to 99 and then from 99 up until the present, I have never seen anybody shoot the ball the way Steph Curry shoots that basketball. Reggie and Ray, bread and butter, was running around the court, coming off screens, catch and shoot, right? Well, Steph is able to do that and more. Steph is able to run people to death, come off screen, catch and shoot. But not only that, he can take you off the dribble, do a step back or catch you off the dribble and still shoot on you. Reggie and Reggie and Ray, as great as they were, never shot from the logo. Never shot from 25 plus feet on a regular basis like Steph does. And he does it with accuracy. Now, he struggled leading up to the breaking of records. I think that breaking of record was just made of a big deal. And, and teams, especially the 76ers game, really got up for Steph to try to not allow him to break the record. But as you saw the game after the Knicks, what was the game the other night? He scored 20 points in the first half, dropping threes because the weight was off his shoulders, you know. And the other thing I like about Steph is that he pays much due respect and homage to Reggie and Ray. He knows he's standing on the shoulders of those guys that came before him. He has a lot of respect for them and has a lot of respect for the game. I think when it's said and done, Steph has probably got another, Steph is 33 now. So Steph can probably do this probably at a high level, probably till about age, I want to say 37, maybe. And if he keeps shooting that ball the way he does, I think his record, his record of three-pointers made will become like the 56-game win streak or the 897 goals in hockey. The 56-game hit streak in, 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 foot, in baseball and 897 goals in hockey. That three-pointers made will be that. Now, with all due respect to his running mate, Clay Thompson, had Clay not got hurt, right? I think we're talking about them two neck and neck at this point. If Clay hadn't gotten hurt, I don't think Steph would would be this close to breaking Ray's record because now you're sharing that rock. So now you're sharing it with another lethal shooter that is able to shoot, not from the logo like that, but he's more of a Reggie Miller type catch and shoot guy, not take out the dribble and shoot like Steph can do. But he's more of a spot up, come off the screen guy. That's Clay. Um, if Clay comes back healthy this season in January, no complication, doesn't get hurt again. You're talking about two of the greatest shooters to ever be on the same team at the same time in NBA history. Mark Jackson said it when he was a coach at Golden State. 
He said, these are the two greatest shooters in NBA history. He said that before he got fired. And I believe if Steph Curry is the greatest shooter, in my opinion, in NBA history, and it'll probably be that way for a very, very long time. But there's one thing I, I would like Steph to do, though, because all everybody sees is the Sports Center highlights or the social media highlights of Steph dropping threes. Let's, even if Steph has to do it himself, let's put out some videos of you putting in the work, bro. See, a lot of people think he's just a natural shooter. That dude shoots thousands of jump shots a day. I mean, this dude was, <laughs> this dude hit 100 straight in practice. 100 straight three-pointers. Not 100 straight free throws, 100 straight three-pointers in practice. He was either 100 or 97 straight. That's a lot of three-pointers, man. So my thing is this as I close out. Steph Curry, greatest shooter that ever lived. If he stays healthy, Clay stays healthy, Wiseman comes back. The way they're playing and the way Curry has got all those young cats bought in, unless somebody gets an ego on that young group of players that they got, um, if they're able to integrate Wiseman and Clay back into what they're already doing. I predict that it's going to be Milwaukee versus Golden State in the NBA Finals because you got to give love to Giannis. You got to you, you you got to say the champs are the favorite until the champs aren't their favorite anymore or aren't there. But if they get back to the 2014, 15, 16 Golden State Warriors when Clay and Wiseman come back, man. They're going to be hard to beat, especially if those young guys keep playing with the confidence. I love Gary Payton the second. I love little Gary Payton. Gary Payton, the glove son, I love Gary Payton the second. He can defend. He can shoot a little bit. He got hops. And he gives them a dimension defensively that gives people a lot of trouble. Um, And he can only get better. And as he gets better, man, and that defense continues to get better. You're talking about the glove too. This kid can he he can he can go. Jordan Poole, he can go. Toscano, he can go. You know? So they got some players on their squad that can go. We just they just need to get Wiseman fully healthy, Clay fully healthy. They're able to blend in. Wiggins gives them size and also defense. Um it's great. And, of course, you know, the backbone is, is Draymond. And so the one thing, the other thing I like about Steph Curry, too, is is that when he broke the record, he paid homage to those guys that were there in the trenches with him from early on. He gave Draymond and Andre Iguodala, who came back to Golden State, he gave them Rolexes as a gift. I thought that was a nice gesture. So shout out to, shout out to Steph Curry. Um, shout out to him and what he's doing. Um, and I just pray that he stays healthy and can continue doing what he's doing. And I think that um, all will be well in the meantime. And with that being said, it's time for shout outs. I always like to give a shout out to somebody, uh, local business. Um, 
um, who is doing good things. So I want to give a shout out to my girl, Leilani Chase. I've known Leilani since she was in high school. She lives here in the DMV. And she has um, done a couple entrepreneurial things um, with her little businesses. She's got a couple businesses. She is, um, just recently started Chase Candle Company. So check her out on Instagram. It's uh, Her Instagram handle is at Chase Candle CO. That's Chase Candle CO on Instagram. She also uh, has an Instagram handle, and I think she still does bargain buys. Um, so check her out. Her actual Instagram handle for her is not check in for you. So that's N O T C H E C K. I'm sorry, not checking for you. Not the word check, the letter N for you on Instagram. So she is doing some things, man. She is doing some things, doing some things. She's able to find these bargain basement shopping things. She's got that going on, but she just recently started. Chase Candle Company. Again, find on Instagram at Chase Candle CO. The CO is short for company. Um, on Instagram, look her up. Support her business. Her emblem is CC, and she's got a nice uh, set of candles that she's putting out. So big ups to her um, and what she's doing. She's doing great things. And I'm getting ready to put out a petition um, for those in the DMV <laughs> who uh, know uh, Lamar King, a.k.a. if you've been around the DMV since the Russ Palm Morning Show days on um, 93.9, um, this guy Lamar King, known as Lazy Lamont, he's a comedian. But Lamont is also a guest host a guest host, sorry for that noise, a guest host on the Karen Hunter Show as well. So I'm going to start a petition um, for Karen, for uh, Lamont King to get his own show on Urban View, Channel 126 on Sirius XM Radio. So I'm going to kick that petition off and try to get my man uh, his own show on that joint because he's funny and I think he is um, kind of what we need right now. He's he's hip. He's up with um, everything that, you know, the world, what's going on in the world, but he's also a comedian too. And so right now I think we need to know what's going on, but also we need to laugh because there's just so much going on in this world right now. Um, so look for a petition I'm going to set one up and send it out. Look for a petition to get him on his own show on XM Urban View on Sirius XM, Channel 126. Um, and check out Joe Madison, the Read Daniel Favors, Heather B., uh, Clay Kane, Karen Hunter, Reverend Al. Those folks are on the daily lineup Monday through Friday. I really love the Karen Hunter show. She's a dope sister. And Lamont is definitely a special guest on her show. So look out for that 
petition to get him on. Um, he also has a Let's Go Live podcast and Let's Go Live YouTube stream that comes on YouTube every day at 6 p.m., I think it is. You can catch him on YouTube at 6 p.m. So shout out to Leilani Chase, Chase Candle Company, on Instagram, at Chase Candle, CO, on Instagram, and Mr. Lamont King on Instagram, F- Facebook, Twitter. Check them out. So big ups to them. And as we close out today, I'm going to close out with a thought for today. And that thought is, is that we need to start thinking differently. Okay, we need to start thinking differently. Um, the things that we see in front of us, we have to know and be discerning of what they are, what the intent is, and then make wise decisions of the things that are in front of us. And so, you know, um, we need to exercise in knowledge and wisdom. And Proverbs 2, 6 and 8 say, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth came knowledge and understanding. He is a shield to those whose walk is blameless, for he guards the course of the just and protects the ways of his faithful ones. So he gives that wisdom. So there's trust in the Lord. He gives that wisdom. And out of his mouth came knowledge. So let's just soak it up so that we can have his shield. And have his guard for us. All right. Peace, two fingers. My name is Troy Sampson, your host for the My Thing Is This podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Again, I post on Anchor FM and Spotify. Make sure you share with your family, friends, and loved ones on all social media platforms or via text. If you go to Spotify, you go to Anchor, and there's an option to share the link. Make sure you share it with everybody. Let me know what you think. Leave a note. Like, subscribe, do all those great things. Peace and love, everybody. I am out. Thank you very much for tuning in this week. Be sure to tune in next week. Hit the like and subscribe buttons. And then remember, the next time somebody says something suspect, well, tell them my thing is this. Because your opinion matters. I'm your host, Troy Sampson. Have a blessed week, and we are out.